Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. This is our Psalm of the Month, and it is the practice here at Dallas RPC to take on a Psalm once a month, to preach on it, so that we may follow the Apostles' rule that we would sing with understanding in 1 Corinthians 14.15. We will survey the Psalm and its main themes. We're not going to exhaust it. This is a long Psalm once again. Uh, But uh, our hope is to get a sense of it, that we would enrich our praises to God as we sing with understanding. So please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 107. These are the very words of our God. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and brake their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass, and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression, and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat. And they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water 
and dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation. And sow the fields and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesseth them also, so that they are multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again they are minished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction, and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray now for the preaching. Our Father and our God, how your works are full of your loving kindness to the church. O oh God, Help the minister now preach the loving kindness of God. Help the minister preach that all of your works, Father, all your works which are full of truth are also full of the loving kindness of God to his people through Jesus Christ. Give your spirit, Father, to the minister to preach in such a manner and give your spirit to the people of God that they would see Christ. They would see the works of Christ not only in the scripture but in their life and throughout all of history. Oh, Father, we pray that Christ would increase in our hearts and our minds now. And to that end, Father, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we who believe often forget that the Lord orchestrates all things, all things for our good. That is a covenant promise for us in the Scriptures. The promise is not, we have to get this right, the promise is not there will not be hard times for the people of God. The promise is that those hard times ultimately work for the good of the people of God. And we must get that straight. There are hard times But the promise is even in hard times, even in our waywardness, as we will discover in the psalm, all things are being orchestrated for our good. Every providence, every circumstance, even if it seems evil, is in fact working for the good of the covenant people of God. That is his loving kindness to us, expressed in way of providence. We forget that though, don't we, so quickly. And like Jacob, we foolishly say, if we are Christ, we foolishly say, all these things are against me. Whereas what does God say? All things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 But maybe worse than man forgetting hard times work for our good in the hard times is our amnesia after God delivers us, after we cry out for relief, after we've cried out to the Lord and he delivers us, our neglect to praise him, that the hard providence did work for our good, our neglect to admit to God that our faith was far too weak, like the disciples in the boat, and he does care for us, and he does send us deliverance. We neglect to say with the psalmist and the Bible's theme, 
It was better for us that we were afflicted. Because of this deficiency of our souls, not once, not twice, but four times our psalm laments, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Our sinfulness is a refusal on two fronts. First, to investigate providence, to find the goodness of God in it, but then to praise him when we discover that he has delivered us so richly time and time again. And our psalm is given to us to remedy this neglect that we have in our soul as it continues to remind us that we should praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. To give praise to the Lord is his due for his loving kindness shown in providence. And so that'll be our theme which is to give thanks to the Lord that both in difficulty and deliverance, providence declares Christ's loving kindness. We consider this under three heads on your bulletin. First is that his loving kindness is observed to be observed by the redeemed. Second, his loving kindness is demonstrated in providences. And third, his loving kindness is to be declared by the church. First, his loving kindness observed by the redeemed. First, a bit of background. It's good to see what we can know of a psalm's background. Its human author is unknown, but from evidence in the psalm, it seems to be composed after the Babylonian exile, as it speaks of, in verse 3, him gathering them out of the lands from the east, the west, the north, and the south. And this would fit with its position in the Psalter. You consider the prior Psalms, they're building up here into Psalm 107. In Psalm 105, you remember that it proclaimed the covenant faithfulness of the Lord to save our fathers from their enemies to lead them into the land of promise. Psalm 106 proclaimed the Lord's covenant faithfulness to be faithful to our unfaithful fathers. We saw that a few weeks ago. That even when the people by all rights could have forfeited the promises of God, the Lord is faithful to his promise when we are unfaithful. In that second to last verse in Psalm 106, you might even see that here, um, verse 47, it says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. You see that there is this anticipation that trouble will come and we will need the promises of God to gather us out of the lands of the heathen. And here in Psalm 107, it now declares that this promise of God to save his people from among the heathen has come to pass. Though our fathers were ejected from Canaan for their unfaithfulness in the Babylonian captivity, in his loving kindness, in his covenant mercy, he was faithful and he brought our fathers out of captivity. What nation could ever say that? And so here we proclaim the loving kindness of God. These three psalms together show us, don't they, the constancy of Jehovah's loving kindness in every possible way. Now, as we've been using this word loving kindness as we find it in the psalm, that word, as I mentioned last month, is the Hebrew word hesed, hesed. Uh, it's a word difficult to translate as we lack any English equivalent, but it signifies that God's mercies are steadfast, never to be erased, never to be diminished. Why? Because they are covenant love. He has bound himself to his love with a solemn promise to never eject his people. 
And it's a promise rooted in his love for a particular people, his elect, summed up in Jeremiah 31.33, that I will be their God and they shall be my people. How can he be the God of sinners like us? You know, I've, we've had to consider this the last few months. It's always good to recall because we forget. Because in his covenant, he gives to us a mediator, the God-man Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.6, the father tells the son, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee, speaking to the son, for a covenant of the people. Jesus Christ is given to us so that Jehovah can be our God and we can be his people, even though we are sinners, that we may have God to be ours. And so in Jesus Christ, then, is the embodiment of the loving kindness of God. You can think of him as the incarnation of the loving kindness of God in the flesh for his people. And what's not obvious, then, as we consider that as by way of review, the Hebrew word for loving kindness is all throughout our psalm. You can't really see it in the English translation, but in the very first verse that says, for his mercy endureth forever, the word mercy is the word loving kindness. For his loving kindness endureth forever. And the lament of the psalm, that refrain in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. The word goodness there is loving kindness as well. Such that it says, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his loving kindness. It's the steadfast love. It's the loving kindness of the Lord that this psalm calls you to rejoice in, believer. And in a particular aspect of it, there are many aspects of God's covenant love. But there's a particular aspect here, which is that all the works of providence show his loving kindness for his church. Children, do you remember what uh, God's works of providence are? In your shorter catechism, question 11, you probably have it memorized. I think most of you do. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, right? I'm certain some of you know that. And what that is then is a a teaching through the scripture that that God has total sovereignty, doesn't he? Total and utter sovereignty. All that comes to pass, comes to pass by his hand. Consider Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Everything that happens then comes from the hand of God. That is providence. He is the supreme and sovereign governor of everything. Why am I standing here? Why are you sitting there? It is God's providence for you this day. And the Bible teaches that he exercises his rule, blessed be God for this truth, for the good of his people. He exercises his sovereignty for the good of his people. Jesus taught how both the sovereignty of God and the loving kindness of God work together. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Christian, all things that happen in this world do not happen by chance at all. They come by way of the hand of our, and notice the the title for God that Jesus uses, by the Father. They come from the Christian's Father who loves his people 
It comes by way of the hand which finds so much worth in his people. Doesn't he say this? Are you not of more worth than the sparrows, than many sparrows? And it comes by way then every providence in this world comes by way of the hand that finds worth in his people. So much so that there was a providence almost 2,000 years ago where the Son of God gives his life for his people. Laying down his life for them. And all of this is rooted in the very character of God and his unchanging nature. In the first verse we hear, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy or hesed lasts forever. He is good. And oh, how good he is to us believers. His mercy lasts forever. It never ends. What a wonderful thing. We don't meditate on these things. You will never fear in eternity, right? Will this be the day when the mercy of God ends and I am thrown into hell? Because his mercy endures forever. And so eternity will be a blessed thing for us. We will never fear if the hand of God will strike us. It will always, it will always lay hold of us in mercy. And his mercy then is always being expressed in every action the Lord undertakes, in every bit of history. No matter how dreadful it appears to us, his loving kindness is found in it. And that is the doctrine and that is the teaching of this psalm. And as I have already cited it, it is expressed elsewhere by Paul in these words that we know, do we know? We know all things work together for good to them that love God who are the called according to his purpose. But the Bible says all things work together for good only to those that love God. And so you have to ask, am I one of these? Otherwise, not everything is working for your good. Instead, they work against you. Who are those that love God? Those who are loved by God are born again by the Holy Spirit, who have their faith in the Lord, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Both God's love for us is shed into our hearts and then our love for God is also given to us. Romans 5.5 These are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not converted, I'll say it again. You can say truthfully today, all these things are against me. Because they are. Even what appear to be blessings will be a great source of eternal torment as the Lord asks you, why did you never glorify me for all that I have given you? But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, friend, and you have the love of God, you can join us in Christ who have had all of our sins forgiven and who who will always praise the Lord in eternity. Who, who say today, even though we struggle in this, who can say today that even those things that seem to work against us are working for our good. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, in fact, Second Corinthians 4. Well, because his people, because we who believe are more like Jacob, all these things are against me and not like Joseph. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The lament of our psalm is, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. How do we praise the Lord? Do we praise the Lord? Let me ask the question that way. Do we praise the Lord as the psalm calls us to when we survey history, both of the world and of our own? Do we praise the Lord for his goodness to us? 
Do we praise the Lord for his loving kindness to the church and to us, the members of his body? Not as we should. In fact, it is very rare. That's why the lament comes. So much grace, so much mercy, so much loving kindness, so little praise. That's the lament of the psalm. And that's even more lamentable, isn't it, friends, for us who are on this side of the cross. If it was lamentable then, as you think on Egypt and Babylon, how much more lamentable is it for us on this side of the cross that we do not praise the Lord as we ought? For Providence Governor, the Governor of Providence now, and I want us to always meditate on that and not forget this, who is Providence's Governor now? Is our blessed Savior, the God-man who laid down his life for his church. His reward is to be the ruler over all things for the church that he suffered for and died. Ephesians 1.19 says he exercises his mighty power to usward who believe. Ephesians 1.22 says God hath put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head of all over all things to the church. The one who purchased the covenant's blessings, the one who is the embodiment of God's loving kindness, the one who has secured us with his blood, is now entrusted with all power to work all things together for the good of the covenant people he gave his life for. So how could we ever be suspicious of providence when the one who laid down his life is the one who decrees and executes every action of providence? One day, providence will prove his loving kindness to us. We need to know it by faith, but one day faith will make way for sight. And we will see that the hard things and the joyful things both together have worked for our good. If providence were a tapestry, right? And that's often the kind of analogy that uh, the church has used for it. If providence were a tapestry, yes, it would have its dark threads, great difficulties for the people of God. But it would also have its vibrant threads, wouldn't it? God's great deliverances of us, especially. And now you think of Romans 8.28 and you think of the all things together portion of the text. Christ weaving together a tapestry, utterly glorious and beautiful. For in the tapestry of providence, you find the dark thread, right, of Satan's temptation of Adam and the fall of man and the horrors of sin which have resulted but also woven within that tapestry are the bright threads, the vibrant threads, the incarnation of the Son of God to deliver us from our sin. The tapestry has the brightness of Bethlehem, His resurrection and His glory. And for each of us individually are threads both with dark difficulties and other threads with vibrant deliverances, often right next to each other, often at cross with one another, but painting a wonderful tapestry for us. If I may mix some metaphors. In glory, we will consider the tapestry of providence as a whole. Not as we do now, we just to laser focus in on on particular sections of it. Not just the dark strands, which is where we tend to put our focus today. Not just the dark strands, but woven together with the bright ones. And we would see something remarkable. We would see that if it weren't even for the dark strands, really the vibrant ones wouldn't stand out so much. And that really, without the dark strands of providence, you would really have a picture that was incomplete and would not actually be so glorious. And what would be the plaque then, if there were a plaque, and if this was a real tapestry, on the plaque that would go to the tapestry of providence? What would it be? Would it not be Romans 8.28? All things work together 
for the good of them that love God that are the called according to his purpose. How we will praise and glorify God for it. But the lament of the psalm is, we do not see it now, we won't admit it now, and we should. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let's consider that some more in our second heading, which is that his loving kindness is demonstrated by providence. In the bulk of the psalm, verses 4 through 41, there are several observations from the psalmist. Four hard providences, if you want to take notes here, in verses 4 through 32, as sort of case studies in the history of God's people, showing his providential deliverance of his people as he led them out of exile and back into the promised land. And after these four cases, there will be a final observation of God's general providence in verses 33 to 41. And what that intends for us to admit and sing of is that everything is in Christ's hands. Everything, everything we observe, he's going to make us see, is in the hand of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go to consider the hard providences in verses 4 through 41 first, um, or 4 through, 40, uh, 4 through 32, there's a pattern here, which is important. It's meant to drum itself into your heart and mind. And the pattern is this. There are four parts to the, each here. The first part is a great difficulty comes over the Lord's people. The second part is they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Third, he is faithful because of his loving kindness, and he delivers them and saves them from their distress. And then fourth comes the lament, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. In hard providences, especially, you must remember this pattern, beloved. Great difficulty. You cry out to God for deliverance, not last, as you're going to see so many have here, but first. God delivers us. And here's the thing, we don't praise. And that's what needs to be remedied. Often deliverance comes, but we don't admit it as God's deliverance, as his providence from his good hand, and we don't praise him. But every deliverance you're going to see is his deliverance. Well, with that, the first example is in verses 4 through 9. Pilgrims journeying in the wilderness, undoubtedly back to the promised land. Verses 4 through 5. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. In the pilgrimage out of Babylon, back to Judah, our fathers often hungered and thirsted. A difficult and dangerous journey. Their soul fainted within them. Then verse 6 says, Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 7, He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment, because each of these, you're going to see, it's going to be very plain, have a spiritual application. This is not just for travelers on the way to a difficult journey. What we find here is, as you see this, he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. You see here the Lord as our faithful shepherd, who has said, Lo, I am with you always. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. It's the Lord who is leading them to a city of refuge. And this promise then is not only for physical travels, but also your spiritual pilgrimage to heavenly Zion. You need the Lord to lead you, friends. You can't get there by yourself. You know, how are you going to do it? It's the light of his word. 
isn't it? How does he lead you? He's not going to grab you by the hand, is he, and just take you there. No, he's going to lead you through his word. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's how he leads you through the wilderness, right? And that's why when the book is neglected, so we find ourselves going astray and we find ourselves in a place that is solitary and has no nourishment for us. This book is his guide to reaching heaven. And we must see it that way. And as your soul faints and you don't know which way to go, and I suspect if you're like any of us here, you've been in that place. You need to pick up the book and pray Psalm 31 verse 3. For thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Too often we're trying to make it there on our own, aren't we? Without God's guidance. And we get lost. He will lead you in such a way as to fill your soul too, as he did when they cried out, verse 7, and he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. He gave our fathers shelter and sustenance, and then the lament comes, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. He gives a reason added to that as to why to praise in verse 9. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. There's the spiritual component, isn't there? Our greater need. Our souls need to be fed more than our bodies do. As you see in verse 5, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Has that been you? on your pilgrimage. I know it's been me at times. Hungry and thirsty, my soul fainted in me. What is, the re- what is the prescription here in every case? Cry out to the Lord. And he says, he will fill your soul with fatness. He will fill you with Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see, the Psalms fulfillment is in Christ. John 6.35 Truly, we say when we sing this then, it is Jesus that satisfieth the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And when he has filled your soul, as I undoubtedly believe every believer he has done at some time, will you give thanks by praising the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men? See the many deliverances in your pilgrimage to heaven as his loving kindness to you and thank him for it. The second example is in verses 10 through 16. I wish we could really dwell on each of these, but we have to go quickly. Verses 10 through 16, these are those in bondage. Verses 10 through 12 explains their calamity. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron. Why? Because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned or despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Why are they in calamity? They rebelled against the word of God. They rebelled against the word of God. They despised the counsel of God Most High, and his chastisement was to send them into prisons. You've certainly seen this in the history of our people, whether it was Babylon, right, which would have been the immediate reference here, where they were sent into bondage. We've been reading that in Jeremiah as we've been doing our scripture readings in the services. The entire nation sent into Babylon in bondage. And the text says, there he brought down their heart with labor. He humbles them with labor, cruel labor. You remember the cruelty of the Pharaoh. Go make brick without what? Straw. 
cruel labor. And how many days a week? Seven days a week. And you know, sometimes we make fun of the prisons in our nation and in the West because they seem like rather like retreats sometimes. But outside of Western nations, prisons are very cruel places. Their labor was so cruel, right? It says here that they fell down. They fell down. There's no strength in them. And there are none there to help them. You know, in so many ways, when we get into a jam, especially for our sin, right? We might be like these who are laboring under their affliction. They fall down, and maybe they've been looking every place. Will you help me? Will you help me? Will you help me? And it finally gets to the point, right, friends, where we say, I guess I'll have to go to God for help. We must not be like that, friends. We often seek first the world's help or find carnal solutions to our problems. Here, there were none to help. They fell down and there was none to help. And especially when the Lord chastens us, there will be no help from men or this world. Or won't. Until we finally figure that out, we will not do what we should have done in the beginning. Verse 13, Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Verse 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands in sunder. You know, this was ultimately rebellion against God. And you see here how kind he is. That he hears them. That he hears them. He, he, he saves them out of their distresses. He brings them out of darkness and the shadow of death and breaks their band in asunder. When you, his people, humble yourselves, when you cry out to him and you repent of your sin, you are forgiven by God and he breaks the bondage that we have to our sin. You know, it is so amazing how kind God is. Our rebellion against himself and he saves us out of the trouble that we deserve. This is a wonderful picture here of being set free from sin. As you think on the spiritual implications, what did Jesus say? If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He breaks our bands in sunder. Believers, what a glorious thing this is, that Jesus Christ has broken our bands in sunder, completely loosed us. He opened the prison gates, freed us from hell, liberated us from sin and Satan's yoke. And whenever you are ensnared, as you think on the spiritual aspect here, whether, whenever you are trapped by addiction to some sin that has ensnared your soul, what are you to do? You are to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And you must trust his loving kindness that he can free you from bondage and misery and smash, right? That's essentially what the sense here. He smashes the bonds that we are in and sets us free. And if he has done that for you, as I suspect every believer, I know for sure every believer, that's the promise of the word, he has set you free from your sin, he has set you free indeed, but even in particular sins that you have been ensnared to, when he has done that, would you praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men? The third example, verses 17 through 22, those who suffer sicknesses. Fools, because of their transgression, verse 17, and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Now, don't read that too quickly. Transgression is a mark of being a fool. The Bible does not mean that a fool is somebody who's stupid or unintelligent. There are many intelligent fools on the earth. 
right? God says that the fool says there is no God. There are many intelligent men like Richard Dawkins who plays the part of a fool. But the thing is, Christian, when you and I commit transgression and iniquity, we play the part of a fool too. In effect, our sin, right, is to say there is no God. He does not see. And I do not care what he sees in my uncleanness. And he says here that sometimes, not always, mind you, sickness is due to iniquities. The broader principle is this. The Lord will chasten us for our sin. He will. And sometimes it will be physical maladies. Hebrews 12.6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Sometimes, again, not always, that can result in ill health. Even, right, as you think of the godly man or woman, when they sin and their conscience is troubled, sometimes they won't even want to eat. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat. And they draw near unto the gates of death. You remember David was tormented by unconfessed sin in Psalm 32. When I kept silence, my bone waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and praise the Lord for this. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. This is God. And praise him. If your soul is in distress and you even to the point where you're feeling ill, will you take up Psalm 32 and confess unconfessed sin? David cried out to the Lord in his trouble, and God saved him out of his distress. And you think of this here in verse 20. It's a wonderful picture. And you see that this is primarily then a spiritual picture. How did he do it? He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. When we need to be turned from our transgressions, God is so kind to send us the word of God, isn't he? Either the word stored in our heart, which is where it ought to be first place, the best place, or in the word as we read it in the Bible, or it is preached to us. The word confronts us with our sinfulness as Nathan confronted David, thou art the man. He sends the word to heal us, though it is not pleasant at the time. If we would turn to the word of God and repent, we would be healed. So in times of affliction, we are to search out our ways in the word of God and see if we are in sin. Then we cry out to the Lord, oh, forgive me, Lord. He heals us and delivers us by applying the blood of Jesus to us. That's his loving kindness. That's his grace, pure grace, loving kindness to his people, right? What is our temptation when somebody transgresses against us and they suffer for it? Say, good, stay there. That's sinful, first of all. But second, see how abhorrent that is to the character of God. When we sin against him, he doesn't say, good, stew in it. He says, come to me, child of God. Repent of your sin. I will heal you. I will forgive you. That's the goodness of God. That is his loving kindness. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And what does he say our duty ought to be after being healed, whether in body or soul? Verse 22, to offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. That's what we came to do on Thursday night, wasn't it? To perform a joyous duty so often neglected by us. To offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving and we even had our brothers declare his works with rejoicing. And the fourth and final example is in verses 23 to 32. His mercy to seafarers. Uh, Verses 23 to 27 speaks of their distress. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord 
and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy winds, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Few things can humble a man or woman like being tossed at sea in a stormy sea. To be tossed on the waves is to know how insignificant you are as a creature. Really is. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. But even the mightiest cruise liners and and naval boats are tossed about like toys on the seas of the storms. The mightiest men here says uh, they will be at their wit's end when a storm batters their boat. At their wit's end. Isn't that a wonderful picture of how we are so often in hard providences? At our wit's end. What can we do? We can do nothing. We are just mere creatures. What can we do in the power of the seas? The seas and the storms are simply God's playthings. They're in his mighty hands. And sometimes, beloved, the Lord will take you to your wit's end like that. Whatever the providence, you don't have to be at sea. Sometimes providences will be so overwhelming for you. You are at your wit's end. And they will toss you up and down, up and down until you learn the lesson. Until you cry out to the Lord in your trouble, acknowledging that you must be still and know that He is God. Not you. That you are not going to get yourself out of the bind. That He alone can save you. He alone is the Almighty. He alone is wise and powerful. Not yourself. Hard providences that take us to our wit's end teach our place dependence on God as creatures. Makes us seek Him. Verse 28 through 30. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet, so He bringeth them unto their desired haven. This is God's mercy again. What should they do when they cal- when he calms the storms and the storms of our lives? Verse 32, let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Corporate worship. Corporate worship. Where the elders gather, you are to exalt him for his loving kindness. Those who truly know what great things the Lord has done for them will not miss corporate worship unless providence dictates they must. They will not miss a chance to exalt the Lord together with his people. And of course, and I know boys and girls, you were probably going here anyway. You cannot think of this portion of the psalm without thinking of Jesus, can you? When the seas gripped his own disciples with fear, were they not at their wits end as well? And there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Listen to this, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said unto them, What was the question? Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 4, 37-41. Friends, when the storms of life arise and you are at your wit's end, are you prone to say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Or will you understand this psalm and the rest of the scripture that says, all of God's works, even the storms, are working together for your good? 
part and parcel of his loving kindness. And what is on you is to cry out to the Lord. Often he asks us, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? What manner of man is our Jesus, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This goes back to our opening uh, opening heading, the God-man mediator over all things for the church. In our nature, right? You remember in the boat, he was asleep. He knows what it is to be tired. And here is the God-man who is able to quell the storms and, and stop the winds. He does care if we perish, doesn't he? In fact, in fact, the incarnation shows that he sympathizes with us and he cares. He knows the troubles of our heart. He even was in such agony in Gethsemane. His soul is exceedingly troubled even to death. He cares. He knows. He sympathizes. And this is with the glory of knowing that the governor of providence has a human nature now, isn't it? That he cares and we are to have faith that he loves us and his loving kindness is expressed in all things. With all power in his hands, he exercises his power in love for our good, which should cause the church to praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. The next section, verses 33 to 41, is the general providence of God. Rivers he turns into a wilderness, water springs into dry ground. Something to take special attention of in verse 34. A fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. We consider this in Hosea, but it is often the case that a land will take on the moral character of its people. Worldly princes, right, today might look at severe climate and drought and will say, well, we must pass legislation to try to control it. And they do this while the blood of the unborn flow into sewers. And they promote ungodly perversions and rail against Christ and his church. Whereas the godly prince looks at the land in distress and asks, does the Lord have a controversy with my people? Is that why his providence is so severe? You know, this nation, contrary to what men might teach you, this nation has been blessed so long, not because it has the right form of government, but because so many here have feared the Lord and have called on his name. And so do not be surprised that as that changes to find a fruitful land turn into barrenness. But also, he can reverse it, can't he? He can turn dry ground into water springs. He can give the hungry a place to dwell. He can give fields and vineyards and bless them and their cattle. And when princes bring us, his people, low in verses 39 to 40, he can pour contempt on unjust rulers. That's where our trust has to be, in the loving kindness of God, isn't it? He can set the poor on high from affliction and give them families as a flock. In all this, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, is the one who controls all of it. No such thing as chance. And so his people must constantly depend on him and not on princes and politicians. And when we note the poor being lifted up and wicked princes being cast away, when the land becomes fruitful, what are the righteous to do? Verse 42 says, The righteous shall see it and rejoice. And all iniquity should stop her mouth. You are to have your eyes open to providence, his deliverances, his blessings, and rejoice. Whereas the unrighteous will have their mouths stopped by God's deliverances. Those mouths that railed against God and his Christ will be shut, just as Pharaoh's mouth was shut when he drowned in the Red Sea. And on that day, when all the tongues of the unrighteous shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
Well, each example here in the psalm shows us what to do in our distress. At our wit's end, you are to cry out to God, the first motion of your soul, the first. Not after you have exhausted the help of men, the ballot box, and the schemes of our flesh. You are to plead his loving kindness as when you pray in Psalm 69:16, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. You see this, his loving kindness is even to be depended on and to be brought as an argument in prayer to God, right? You do have loving kindness for your people. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude, the inexhaustible, as you saw last month, his tender mercies. And you are to plead them in prayer, trusting he is faithful, trusting he is faithful. Also, you see from these examples, you are to search out our ways when we are afflicted. You're to open the word, open the law of God, and search out our ways and repent of sin, trusting in the mercy of God. Right? This is the thing, right? So often we are afraid to discover what's in our heart. And in a sense, I understand that. I am too. But what a terrible duty that would be if it were not for the loving kindness of God. You saw how often in the psalm, just in the psalm, he freely forgives and delivers for those who turn to him. And then lastly, in the cycle, we must recognize when we are delivered, this is a demonstration of his loving kindness. We must never say our deliverance happened by chance or attribute it to luck or to attribute it even to another person or organization or even a, a, a friend or a minister or an elder or, or a president. No, it was God. It was God. And by his covenant commitment. And so lastly, we conclude with his loving kindness to be declared by the church. Verse 43 says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. In the Hebrew, actually, whoso is wise is a question. And some translations will, will put the question mark there. Whoso is wise. In other words, are you wise? Are you wise or are you a fool? A fool will look on all these things and not see the work of God or the loving kindness of God. But the wise man or woman observes the providence of God, both its difficulties and its deliverances, and they understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Your wisdom in being a student of providence, if you are a student of history, is not just to see these things sort of happening willy-nilly, but is to see it as orchestrated by the loving hand of God for his people. To see that both deliverance and difficulties were working together for the good of his people. And you must not just be a student of history generally, but you need to think on your own history, believer. Are you wise? Will you look on your own history? Will you think of it from the earliest days to where you are now, even in the days of unbelief? And will you see that all those days, all those days leading up to your conversion and beyond are an expression of the loving kindness of the Lord? There was nothing random. There was no random meeting. There was no random walking into the church where you heard the gospel. There was no fr a random friend who came and expressed the words of life to you. None of that was random, all of it orchestrated by the hand of God. And when you were convicted of your sin, that was not random. That was the loving kindness of God coming to confront you with it. The difficulties, I think of the difficulties even in my life, and I can look back now and say, all those things together are working for good to bring me to where I am now, and I think of the difficulties today, and I must believe the same thing. Are you wise? 
Will you do this and discover His loving kindness and mercy in your life? And the church as the people of God as a whole, all providences, even the turmoil on the world stage today, Ukraine, inflation, whatever else, if you were wise, you would see it is better for the church that these things happen than if they did not. In some way, He is manifesting His loving kindness for His people through it. And one day when we look at the tapestry of providence, we'll say that is why Putin is in power or whatever. And so... Verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You are not just to reflect on his loving kindness, but you are to say so and declare it. This is even an argument again in prayer. When you cry out to him in prayer in your affliction, Psalm 88, 11, see how the psalmist leans on the loving kindness in his trial. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? It's like you silence my voice, Lord, here on this earth and the affliction takes me clean away. I will not declare, I will not be able to declare your loving kindness to a people who need to hear it. Preserve me, God, so I can declare it. But I don't suppose that will ever be a good argument in prayer, would it, if you don't do it? How can you use that argument unless you declare the loving kindness of God for you? Declare it in prayer and in praise and declare it in person to others. What's the awful lament one last time? Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, his loving kindness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Is he not worthy? Is he not worthy? Is our Christ not worthy? Is he not worthy of being praised for his goodness by us? Is he not worthy of being praised for his wonderful works, especially for his cross? For at the cross you find that ultimate great demonstration of his loving kindness, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's the greatest demonstration of the loving kindness of God according to the Bible. That's why the apostle says, what? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you say with the 63rd Psalm, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help. Is that not what the psalm has shown us? Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. That is how we must see the loving kindness of God. The psalmist meditates on the works of God. He praises God with joyful lips, and his soul is satisfied, right? We saw this. He fills the hungry and thirsty soul as with marrow and fatness, and he says, my lips shall praise thee because of this. May it be for all of us, friends. Let us praise the loving kindness of Jesus Christ to sinners like us. Amen. May our praise be enriched by our meditation. Please rise for prayer, if able. Our holy God, we do lament that men do not praise you for your goodness and for your wonderful works to the children of men. Most of all, we come to lament that in our own hearts. Father, you have done good and only have done good for us. You have promised, you have given us a promise that you will never break, that all things 
work together for the good of them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. O Father, help us remember that in the hard times, and in the hard times when we are at our wits' ends, help us to cry out to you, O God, and then deliver us, for your loving kindness is better to us than life, or at least that's what we are to believe. Make it so in our hearts, Father. If any here have never known the love of God, have never heard of the love of God to his people through Jesus Christ, would you manifest your loving kindness with the Holy Spirit shed abroad in their hearts today, uh, the love of God, that they would have the love of God, that faith would be given to them, that they would believe the precious promises that we revel in today. And would they look then back on their history and see that everything has been working for their good to the day of their conversion. Help us reflect on that this Sabbath day. Lord, we often say we don't know what to do with the time today. Help us to look back in our lives and praise you for every, every token of kindness you have shown us. We thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.